well, it's it's impossible to avoid Blade Runner as a sci-fi fan. It's huge, and for good reason, I think. In a lot of ways, it's thought of as being a seminal piece of cinema. Its visual style is still one of the more sophisticated pieces of of film that I think we've had as sci-fi fans. It's still, like, up there. It does really last and stand the test of time. Welcome to Sci-Fi. I'm your host, Jesse Mercury. This episode is all about, you guessed it, Earth Girls Are Easy. No, I'm kidding. It's about Blade Runner, and I'm very excited. My guest this week is Daniel O'Connell. You might know him as Baby Dan. I'll be showing him Blade Runner for the very first time. Plus... We're going to hear from Laura B., Ken Carlson, and James McEwen get their thoughts on the film. No Blade Runner episode would be complete without the incredible music of Vangelis, which you're hearing right now. His music is almost as futuristic as his use of the mononym. And lastly, before we get started, I have one last thing to say to you. Very important news that just happened. I have nothing to say about this besides the fact that I want to say it out loud because I like the way it sounds. Star Wars. Episode 8, The Last Jedi. Fuck, that's cool. Alright, let's jump into it. Pardon me while I kiss the sky. Blade Runner. Blade Runner. He's the blade. Robots Runs in from disguise. The other blade. <laughs> Pretty good. <laughs> Thank you. I don't was... know much about the movie, but I feel like my song also was correct. Wait, sing your song again? I did. Blade Runner, robots in disguise. Nice. I like that. I was singing uh, Goldfinger. Nice. The cool. James Bond song. Cool. What's yeah. the best James Bond song? Uh, Goldfinger. <laughs> Is that one the best one? I. It's my favorite. All right. I don't remember. I like uh, whatever one Paul McCartney did was solid. Oh, really? Uh, 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 oh, Live and Let Die. Yeah. That's a good song. This is a real good it's song. It's a weird song. Wings is weird. That was Wings, wasn't it? I don't know. Wing, I don't know what Wings. Wings is. It was his band after the Beatles. Yeah. Wait, yeah, Wings. It was weird. What did you ask me? Uh, I don't remember. What the best one was. Oh, yeah. And you said Goldfinger. Yeah. Adele's one was pretty good. Goldfinger is just like the classic... In my mind, like the classic James yeah, Bond song. Yeah, Skyfall feels like a cartoon Shut of a up, James phone. Bond song. Sorry. No, it's fine. All I was doing was expressing myself, but that's fine. It was very unprofessional of me. Yeah. How yeah. dare you? It's like you've never podcasted. I Let me know. show you the ropes. First Thank off, you. talk into the microphone, all right? Not into your hand. <laughs> yeah. You monsters. Step I, two, don't interrupt me. Oh. <laughs> cool. <laughs> Cool. All right, so we're, we're about to watch Blade Runner. <laughs> Just take the wheel, man. Take uh, it. We're about to watch Blade Runner. We're going to watch Blade Runner. What's what You wanted to talk to me before. I, I've never... Okay, so starting off, I've never seen Blade Runner. So, the, cool. That's, yeah. <laughs> that's what you're getting here. Uh, I was very excited for you to take the wheel, but we, are re- we immediately ran into the problem that I was supposed to ask you questions. 100%. <laughs> yeah, you said take the wheel, and I was like, oh no, I have taken over as host, and I have no direction. <laughs> yeah, you don't know You don't mm-hmm. know what to do. No. It's okay. It's my show. Yeah. But like, the, this is the second time in a row where I've like wanted the guest to take over because I'm lazy. Cool. That's fair. Yeah. I but you know what? How about, how about I'll, I'll take the wheel for a minute, and then we'll watch the movie, and then you take the wheel again. Cool. How's that cool, sound? Cool, cool. How about you know what? How about we just decide when, when, uh, who takes the wheel when, based off how we're feeling. How's totally. that sound? Like totally. a good road trip. Absolutely. Sometimes you need a nap. You know. And, and you know what? If I the the I'm I take the wheel so often that if I could not take the wheel for a good chunk, yeah, 
it would be, be great. You'd be real jazzed. I'd We're going love for that. a real land speed record of saying take the wheel. Yeah, this is like on a reality show and like they threw me under the bus. Like they, <laughs> they just, it's not my wheelhouse. You know, they just pick mm-hmm. like a, a random phrase that becomes the phrase mm-hmm. for all of Celebrity Apprentice. Yeah. Uh, were you a Celebrity Apprentice person? I, I have to admit that I used to watch it. That's fair. I watched I remember it. Gary Busey being That's on the it season. And being yeah. Into it. Gary Busey and Meatloaf. That was a fucking shit show. Oh, I don't think I knew who Meatloaf was outside of him being Bob in Fight Club. All I knew is that he would do anything for love, but he won't do that. Cool. And I only knew that because remember, uh, is that his song? Yeah, that's his what? big. What I didn't big, know big that. Hit. I would do anything for love, but I won't do that. Yeah, that yeah, was yeah. very well in tune. Thank you. No good. big deal. I've yeah. been listening to music lately. So. Yeah, totally. <laughs> um, so there was. Did you ever watch uh, like Snick, the Saturday Night Nickelodeon? Maybe there was a show. I think it was called Roundhouse, and they did a, a sketch, and it was like. It was meatloaf, but he was vegetarian. (laughs) He's like, I would do anything for love, but I won't eat meat. And I thought that was the funniest thing. It's pretty good. It's pretty good. I mean, it's not as good as it was when I was 12. But when I was 12, that shit was hot. I rewatched Celebrity Deathmatch recently. I was like, this is fine at best. Oh, my God. Celebrity Deathmatch. Yeah, that used to be my fucking jam. That was like like Claymation, right? Yeah. Oh, my God. I haven't thought about that show in so long. Dude, that was like single-handedly the best part of going on vacation. We'd like go to this beautiful beach and I'd be like, time to watch cable TV at 1230 at night. (laughs) Wow. Oh my God. You just sent me down a a nostalgia hole. Mm -hmm. I remember Brad Pitt being... It's Brad Pitt versus Keanu Reeves and the name of the match was Sexiest Man Man Alive. And I remember nothing else about it. Who won? I don't remember. It's like epic, uh, epic rap battles of history. Mm-hmm. No one cares. You know? Oh man, I love epic rap battles of oh, history. I love, I love. Uh, look, anything where you have. Oh no! Look, anything where you have Watsky be Shakespeare, I'm on board. But, but no one really cares who won. Right? Think totally. Maybe Watsky's that rapper that you like recommended to me. He's stupendous. He plays Shakespeare in that. Oh shit! I don't know if I've seen that one. I'm all about the Captain Kirk one. That one is so good. I haven't seen that one. I love a good Kirk impression. Yeah, yeah, it makes me happy. Uh, yeah, he's Shakespeare and he's against. Who's he against? Doctor Seuss. Oh, the Doctor Seuss rap isn't like technically sound, but it's like a good like I don't know, like a good like club song. You're like, oh yeah. Nice. Zing him, Seuss. Zing him, <laughs> thing one and thing two. Zing him, Seuss. Yeah, zing him, Seuss. <laughs> Pretty good. Pretty good. So you've never seen Blade Runner before? Yeah, I've never seen life. Blade Runner. Not the once. Not the once. Mm-mm. So, okay. So in your mind, what is Blade Runner about? What do you think it is? It is about Harrison Ford. So far, so good. Killing robots. So far, so good. Because they've gone rogue, maybe? Uh, and it is also about Edward James Olmos being there somehow. We basically don't need to watch the movie now. I That's get it. Ex- exactly right. Cool. I feel like uh, you were you were close. Edward James almost. <laughs> How dare you? How dare you? I bet he put, he puts up with that shit every day. And I apologize. Throwing stones from afar. I apologize, Edward James almost. <laughs> Uh, uh, yeah, so that is correct. I mean, that is what. What the if he's about. like one of your listeners and he stops listening now? <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Okay, first of all, I guarantee you that Edward James Olmos is not listening to this show. I don't know, maybe but he's a lurker. And because it is a physical possibility, I will just say, <laughs> Ed, just send me an email and I'll apologize. Oh, yeah, no, not after you call him Ed. Ed, well, we'll start, a, we'll start a, a, a personal one-on-one email conversation, sci-fi uh, at jessemercury.com. Hey. And I, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll work it out. Look, I, Mr. Almost, I'm so sorry for how rudely Jesse has spoken <laughs> to you thus far. But if you would like to talk it out, I, I, I could sort of be your mediator. <laughs> so go ahead and hit me up on Facebook. Uh, you'll know where to find me. The rest of this podcast is going to be me, be me talking about how hot Edward James almost looks in Blade Runner. Really? He looks so hot in Blade Runner. Fuck yeah. I've said cool. it before and I'll say it again. I'm going to say it right now and then I'll say it later because we're cool. going to watch the movie and then talk about it. What are you going to say? Uh, Edward James almost fucking hot in, in Blade Runner. Cool, he looks hot. Cool, he's in got my, like incredible outfits. Yeah, yeah. I uh, I can never remember what he looks like unless I'm looking at him. Does that make sense? That's like a that's actually one of the bad guys in Doctor Who. Like you can't remember them unless you're looking at them. Nice. It's also a a god in American Gods. Oh, interesting. I don't. You know, Neil learned... Gaiman wrote a great episode of Doctor Who. Did he? Which one? Uh, it's the one where the TARDIS has like a physical personification. Cool. Never I forget mind. the I forget the name. It's I one of my favorite episodes. It's so good. I started to ask and then realized that I've seen one episode of Doctor <laughs> Who, and it was is the Weeping Angels one. Oh, and it it's was so good. Dope and dark, and so I was yeah. like, maybe he wrote that one. Wait, the first Weeping Angels one? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, blink, two, don't blink. Yeah. Is it called Blink or Don't Blink? It's called Scary Angels. Yeah, number one. That was written by Stephen Moffat, who went over, who went on to take over the show. He writes Sherlock. Did he? I thought he rebooted it. Did he? He just took it over. I yeah, thought it was, it was the original rebooter. No, uh, it was. Well, it's not necessarily a reboot on Doctor Who. It's just a continuation. Like the show was off the air for a long time, and they call it kind of a reboot, but it really. I mean, it doesn't restart the story. It just continues right. the story. Like right. everything that ever happened in Doctor Who way back in the sixties happened in Doctor Who. In my head, it's a reboot from a pr- production standpoint. Yeah, you know that's I mean? that that I can get on board with for sure. Uh, in yeah. my head, that's sort of always what reboot meant, but yeah. I guess that's not true. I I always call it New Who. Cool. I, and when I say that, I, I am actually thinking about production because like there was a big break in production yeah. and then they kick off production again and it looks a lot different because it's like more modern. Looking. Right. But Russell T Davies was the guy who brought it back. Okay. And, and he ran the show. Yeah. He ran the show for, uh, I want to say four years and then Stephen Moffat wrote several episodes in that time and then took over the show for, I one, two, three, four, five, five years, I think it'll be. No, six years when he's done. Uh, three of Matt Smith and three of Peter Capaldi. And then it's going to go on to uh, this new guy whose name I can't remember off the top of my head. Right. You should watch more Doctor Who. It's fucking awesome. It's so great. I thought it was I. Right. I watched, so the Weeping Angels episode, Hot Fire, and then I watched some other episodes and I was like, eh, that's fine. Yeah, you know what? Maybe it's not for, you're a very critical person. Cool. Like, maybe it's not for you. <laughs> <laughs> no, like, I like, uh, like, I can't imagine you watching like every episode of Star Trek or Stargate and enjoying yourself. You'd probably get pissed off at how bad it can get. Whereas maybe. I'm just like, I I'm love just, being in space and this is the most fun I've ever had. Yeah, it's not. I don't think it's that I'm critical. I think it's that I feel a sense of guilt every time I'm doing anything. And when I'm consuming art that isn't perfect, I'm like, why am I wasting my time with this? There's perfect art out there. I should Whoa. be doing better. I should be a better person consuming better that stuff. That is an insane weight. Holy shit. Yeah. That must well, be exhausting. Well, <laughs> oh, man. You have no I don't idea. have that at all. I'm just like, <laughs> I need to consume all of the sci-fi. Yeah, that's fair. That's my weight. 
there's but just, it's it's a very joyous endeavor like for me so much good stuff that i'm like i should be consuming all the best stuff yeah like I people should. people get mad at me they like i i'm uh i've been seeing someone and she's telling me how she's like seeing the sci-fi movie that i haven't seen and she's like really upset with me i'm like i don't know i haven't seen it what am i supposed to say yeah like honest. people people say that to me a lot now they're like oh i've seen the sci-fi movie that you haven't seen what what are you what kind of sci-fi fan are what you i'm like i'm one brand. that has two sci-fi podcasts and writes a bunch of songs about science fiction mm. i feel like i got it down i feel like i'm fine i don't uh, need to see everything i just see what i want to see i don't know man i think you're falling off <laughs> I'm falling off the sci-fi wagon. Yeah. You're off brand. I'm off brand. Now you're a creator instead of a consumer, you fool. <laughs> oh, I am very much both. Yeah. And speaking of consuming Blade Runner. Let's watch Blade Runner. Uh, is there a do you have questions for me other than what is my conception of it? Or so it where where do you think it like uh like tell tell me about how you think it sits in fandom? I don't uh it seems like one of those things that is like universally agreed upon as being great. Okay. Like, uh, it seems, but like in a cult way where like it didn't, uh, it feels like everyone thinks they're like privy to a thing. Like, mm, I know about this little indie flick called Blade Runner, but like <laughs> at this point it's been so like, so beloved for so long that it's like part of mainstream culture without, I don't know. It feels like it's universally, uh, adored and considered very good. And it seems dark. I don't know if it is, but it feels dark in vibe to me. Your information is all very accurate. Cool. Yeah. I'm fucking nailing accurate. it. Accurate. Yeah. So it's, uh, there was like seven different versions of this movie. And the version that I've chosen for us to watch is the final cut. It's the one that Ridley Scott had the most uh, control over. It came out in 2007. The original movie came out in like 83, I think. I should know that, but I don't off the top of my head. Uh, and the studio stepped in and said this is too dark they tacked on a happy ending where they actually took footage from the shining to tack on a happy ending what uh yeah it does uh, feel isn't different. that crazy yeah and then they harrison ford added this narration that went over the whole movie that's the version i think i first saw when i was really young and i didn't quite like it yeah. uh, but then i watched the the new one the final cut when it came out um, my friend bought it on Blu-ray and then he worked at this place in San Diego where he had access to a theater. Like he, he worked at the, the natural history museum so we could get Dope. into the theater and watch Blu-ray stuff Dope. by ourselves at night. And we watched Blade Runner and I had like the, the most transformative experience and I just fucking loved it. And I couldn't even believe it was the same movie. I felt like I was maybe seeing it on the big screen had a big, a lot to do with that also. Cause it's gorgeous. Yeah. Uh, that's the thing that for me that really sets it apart is the visual aspect of Interesting. it. Um, I will say that there are a lot of people out there that think that this movie is overhyped. So, uh, right. I want to say that up front because I think that cool overhyping movies is like really dangerous. And I think that uh, there's a lot of things in this movie that are so like problematic that I'm really excited to talk with you about after we've seen it. Uh, but I think in like a good way and it's a movie that I really love and I'm yep. very, very excited to see what you think of it. Cool. So cool. Let's, let's just dive right in. Let's huh? watch it. You want to like let's smoke a bunch right of weed in. and then watch this movie? I would love to do both of those activities well, in one those order things. or the other. So if we sound weird when we come back, we're stoned. It's because we smoke cool pot, baby. Yeah. <laughs> All right, let's cool. do it. Bye y'all. We would do anything for love, but we won't do that. I was nice. hoping we were going to make up a new ending. No. But nope. we won't. But we won't kill sheep or something. Yeah, yeah that would have been solid. Yeah. I, to be honest, I would kill sheep for love. I'm Ken, um, creator of Dead Drift, and I'm here with uh, James McEwen who is the author of uh, the science fiction trilogy Hammer's War. 
And we're just, we're just going to talk a little bit about Blade Runner. Yep. Blade Runner is one of those movies that, for me, became greater than the sum of its parts. Uh, in mechanical terms, it's it's like it violates the laws of physics because it produces more energy than it consumes. Uh, it's it's that amazing to me. From the very beginning, it draws you into a kind of a dreamlike vision of future Los Angeles. And the Vangelis is playing in the background, and, and it complements the lush visuals. And you're really transported to this other world. You, you know it isn't real, but it feels real. And I, I think that's a testament to the production design of the film. And like most well-made works, it, it really stands the test of time. And to me, that's kind of the best homage to the source material. But to craft a world that really feels like Dick's world. Like, Dick is everywhere you look in Blade Runner. I mean, you see so much dick, you could probably just reach out and grab a handful of dick. And one of the things I love so much about Philip K. Dick is that he's a master of blurring the lines between reality and something that's not quite real. Something sort of phase-shifted, just a degree or two out of sync with everything else. His books create uh, this wonderful feeling of disorientation and I'm, uh, that frequently leaves me questioning my own perception. And being familiar with uh, a few different mind-altering substances, I, I feel like Dick's writing often elicits similar sensations. Reading Dick is like being on drugs without taking drugs. And I love it. And, and I, know, I know Blade Runner isn't straight Dick. <laughs> it's Dick through Ridley Scott. Uh, but, so the theme of what is real and, and who is real, uh, I relate it to Roy Batty and Pris and the rest of the Nexus 6 replicants more human than human. Are they human? They were engineered with very short lives to keep them from becoming too self-aware and asking these kinds of questions, but we soon learn that they believe themselves to be very real and are very interested in self-preservation. At some point, we all learn that we're mortal, that death is waiting for us at an unknown place in the future. Can you imagine knowing the specific date of your demise and imagine knowing that it's mere days or weeks away? To know that your experience is all you have and it's scheduled to disappear forever on a specified date. That's really all of us, isn't it? The, the only difference between us and Roy Batty is that we don't know our shutdown dates. And then, and then one, of the, one of the big questions about Blade Runner is, uh, is Deckard a replicant? And that's another fantastic element of ambiguous dick in the film. We don't know. Signs point to yes uh, in Scott's favorite version of the film, The Final Cut. But Harrison Ford himself has insisted that Deckard isn't a replicant. So just like much of Philip K. Dick's work, the lines are kind of blurred. We don't know. We're left to decide for ourselves. What's real? What isn't? Is this who we really are? Or are we something else? Will we find the answers? Who knows? We're all just kind of killing time until our shutdown date. And that, uh, for me, really the, the essence of what makes Blade Runner one of my favorite films of all time is those questions that it raises and, and the grace and beauty that it raises them with. Um, mor mor mortality and what's real. What do you think, James? Well, I, I think that uh, Blade Runner set the standard for a lot of modern science fiction films, not just for the cinematography of it, because it's beautiful. I mean, really, it's dark and it's dreary, but it's beautiful when you look at it, how it was filmed. But uh, the, um, the just the way that it, it, everything, it, it, everything is always held up to that Blade Runner standard. You know, when you talk to people about other films, 
What are the two films they always compare every film to, every science fiction film to? Blade Runner and Alien? Well, those are Ridley Scott films, yeah. <laughs> oh, right. Blade, Blade Runner and Star Wars. Oh, yeah, okay. Those yeah. are the two that, the two big baddies that everybody gets compared to. Right. And, you know, as a science fiction author myself and writing my own universe and my own books, I often look at the things from the past and, and look at other people's works. And I've looked towards Blade Runner and Philip K. Dick's work. Um, in fact, one of the things that I'm toying with is the whole idea of a, a, an artificial intelligence becoming self-aware. Right. So it's not a new concept, but it's fun to play with that concept. Absolutely. No, it's fascinating. And it, it really does, the, the look of it, the, it was kind of one of the earliest examples of fusing science fiction and noir. Yes. Um, and it pulled off, you know, Deckard pulls off the hard-boiled detective um, in a science fiction futuristic setting. I'm excited for the, the sequel. I've only seen the one trailer. Right. That's all I've seen as well. I am very stoked about the trailer. But it, it should be interesting to, to see how they carry the story the story forward. Um, because, you know, Decker, at the end, he ran off with uh, Sean Young's character. Right. And because he loved her. Mm -hmm. And um, it'll be interesting to see what they did with that. You know, is he become old and crusty because all the years he's been by himself? Or did he find another replicant or somebody else? Or Right. There's, there's a lot of different directions I could see them taking it. And I, I know a lot of people are really... Like nervous or apprehensive about the sequel, I've, I've heard people talking about the sequel diminishing the value of the original, and that's kind of absurd, honestly. Like the original is going to stand on its own as a classic, regardless of what the sequel does. Um, the the, the sequel is not going to have any impact on the weight and the value of the original. No, because the fans of the original are already fans of the original. Right, exactly. And, you know, it's it's really going to be, is the sequel going to stand up to the original? And, you know, a lot of times sequels don't. Right. And it's it's definitely got a very difficult time ahead of it if it's if it's looking to be on par with the original. Which it's is got big awesome. shoes to fill. Yeah, totally. The one thing that gives me hope that it may come close is the fact that Roger Deakins is signed on as the director of photography. And I don't think I've ever seen a Roger Deakins movie that I didn't adore. Uh, if if nothing else, it will be a, a feast for the eyes. Yeah. Because that dude is uh, that dude is skilled. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I enjoyed. Uh, I think that what it came out originally came out in 1982. That sounds about right. Yeah, I was eight years old, I think, when it came out. Nice. And uh, I don't think I saw it until I was a little bit older. My parents didn't want me to see it because of all the violence in it. Right. But uh, you know the scene that sticks out most in my mind from a little kid point of view? It's the scene where um, Roy meets his creator. Basically right. meets God. Yeah. You know, it's what, what Philip K. Dick was working with. And he kills him. And, you know, he takes his thumbs and pushes his eyeballs into his head, mm -hmm. crushes him. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, <laughs> that scene has always stayed with me. I don't know why, but ever since I was a little kid, I was like, I, I kind of thought it was kind of cool, but it was also freaky, too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, a little bit. I want more life, Father. Yes. <clears throat> But, uh, yeah, it's... Um, I think one of my favorite scenes from, from it, for sure, is, uh, is Roy Batty's soliloquy at the end, uh, when, when he dies. Um, and it's just this perfect... This culmination of all of this rage that he's felt, and then finally he's at the end of his life, and he knows it, and he's just, he's just kneeling there, and it's raining, and he delivers that soliloquy. It is so poignant... And touching, and it, it doesn't just apply to him and his life. It really, I think, applies to all of us, because everything that we know is going to be lost. You know, like tears in the rain. Yeah, yeah. 
And then also, uh, <clears throat> I've always been particularly fascinated by J.F. Sebastian um, because he kind of parallels the replicants in that he's got this this aging disease where he ages prematurely mm-hmm. and he's very alone in his life. He doesn't have any real human connections, so he you know he builds toys to be his companions. Uh, so he's 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 isolated. He's alone, and he's going to die prematurely, and he's he's aware of that. So he meets Pris, and he feels this instant connection with her. And of course, you know she's beautiful, so he's he's taken with her that way as well. But then, you know, Roy Batty shows up. Yeah, I don't know. I was just fascinated <laughs> by the the kind of the the futility of, of his character. It just resonated with me. Yeah, the well, the whole the whole thing was it was a, well, the great thing about the early '80s was you know sci-fi was really just starting to come into its own as an art form. Um, you had the Ridley Scott already with Alien in the 70s, late 70s, you know, in Star Trek or Star Wars. Um, but previous to that, you know, science fiction was relegated to the, you know, the campy rocket ships on uh, with sparklers coming down the trail with, you know, the 1950s type of campy science fiction. Right. So I think Blade Runner really set a course change for the way science fiction stories were told in film and cinema. No, I can see that, definitely. But yeah, I remember a lot of films from that era. I wonder if they're gonna. Do you know if they're gonna have Rutger Hauer's gonna at least get a cameo or something in there? I have not heard anything about uh, Rutger Hauer being involved. I think one of the big concerns that a lot of people are talking about now online is uh, whether or not Deckard is is a replicant. They're like, well, how did he age? And I'm like, well, you know, you're gonna probably have to just wait for those answers. Right. Right. Uh, yeah. Thank you very much to Jesse Mercury at the Sci-Fi Project for. Uh, having us on here today and james i guess i'm on i'm on just uh turn it over to you to talk about uh, hammer's war a little bit well thanks i appreciate that i appreciate the chance to plug my books here um hammer's war is based on the star guard universe written um and published in a game form wargaming tabletop wargaming in 1974 by my father john s McEwen. um and over the last 40 years it's been played all over the world and we have fans everywhere and i grew up with it and my dad built this beautiful stage and he never told any major stories on it. So one day I said, hey, Dad, do you mind if I take your work and, and expand on it and write some books? And he's like, go for it. And now now he, he calls me and says, hey, what's going on here? What's going on there? And so I put it into it. But it's basically, um, for the Stargard fans out there, if there are any listening, um, this is in the fourth period of time in the timeline in the Stargard universe, the unwritten period. So I'm basically writing the story of how all the governments become one government. And it um, all the all the... There's this big galactic war and stuff, and it becomes called Hammer's War because of one man who is a genetically engineered assassin who makes one choice. He chooses not to kill innocent children, and that choice snowballs into a giant galactic war, which then brings all of the governments in the, in the galaxy under one, one rule. But it's very tongue-in-cheek. There's a lot of jokes in it. But uh, it's good. It's a fun ride. I write stuff that I like to, you know, I like to read. I like fun, funny, action-packed. You know, if it's not a roller coaster. It's not fun to me. So if you're not happy one minute, you're not crying one minute, one minute you want to throw the book down because you hate the, the bad guy so much, you know, it's not a good ride. So if you're into that kind of stuff, I highly recommend Hammer's War. It's available on Amazon.com. There are, like I said, the three, there are three books, uh, both in Kindle and uh, paperback version. And the fourth book, which I am almost finished, <laughs> the first draft, um, is uh, Hammer's Commandos, and I'm hoping to have that published by May of this year. So, nice. So, yeah. what is this 
Stargard universe that you speak of, because I'm not sure that I'm familiar with where that comes from. Uh, my dad, you know, he makes miniatures for a living at tin-shoulder.com. I'm going to plug that real quick. Right. Uh, <laughs> um, and he just, he was one of the original wargamers. He knew the guys that wrote D&D. You know, he, 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 he was that generation. Right. And he um, wondered what, it would, what would it be like if you took jet belts or jet packs and stuck them on soldiers? How would that change the battlefield? And so he created this little skirmish game called Stargard, which they had Stargard Marines and Rael and I, which are uh, lizard people. And, and then it just kind of grew into this huge, massive universe with over 25 different alien species, several different governments. Uh, and it's just grown over the years and years and years. I just took the universe and took the stage and, and set my, my story in it and have been running with it. So there's a, there's a Stargard game? Yeah. Nice. Um, it's called Stargard, and it's available on right. tin-shoulder.com. <laughs> Uh, it is the granddaddy of all Stargard, or I mean, all uh, science fiction miniature war games. It's the first, it's the oldest. There isn't anything that was before it. Nice. And it's the longest continually published and run star, uh, tabletop war game for uh, miniature uh, science fiction miniatures. Nice. That's so. very cool. Yeah. Okay, awesome. And then uh, we're going to talk a little bit about Dude, I Got an Idea, um, since uh, we're, we're also a podcaster down here. I do with my best friend, uh, Greg Mason, uh, live Monday nights on MixLR.com uh, slash Dude, I Got an Idea. We talk about all sorts of stuff. And um, so, yeah, check us out. We're also on SoundCloud and iTunes. All right. And then uh, if I got a shot here, Jesse, what's up? <laughs> I'm going to go ahead and plug the epic science fiction comedy web series, Dead Drift that you can find at deaddriftshow.com. Definitely a must-see. If you like uh, Red Dwarf and you like The Office, then you might like what happens when Red Dwarf and The Office get together. And that's... And they have a silly love child. (laughs) (laughs) And that is Dead Drift. And we made this show in our garages in Olympia, Washington. So check it out at deaddriftshow.com. All right. And then I guess uh, that's probably enough of that, isn't it? All right. uh, Shut her down. Okay, we are rolling. Cool. Are we actually rolling? We're actually rolling. Oh, uh, what do you know? So, so, so we got really stoned, and then we made a mistake, and we talked for a, a while. Yeah, yeah. We a got long time. really conversational. Yeah, and we never and then, ended up watching Blade Runner. So, we didn't even uh, watch Blade Runner. Four out of five stars. Would do we it, talked would for see it again. four hours. Mm-hmm. So, it, so actually, we we uh, we realized we were running out of time. So then we watch Blade Runner in a hurry, mm-hmm. which is hard because it's a movie. Yeah, yeah. So it just goes at the pace it goes at. Doesn't yeah, care totally. what you have to do that. It day. did not give a shit that we were in a rush. So now we only have half an hour. Mm-hmm. So we yeah. actually had to set a timer and we have half an hour of time. So we're yeah. just going to like crazily talk about this just movie. Fucking just hit it. So what? Okay. First impressions of Blade Runner hit me. Uh, so good. So flipping good. A little rapey uh, at one part, which made me thoroughly uncomfortable. Totally. But outside of that. Very, very good. So the rape, the rapey thing is very uncomfortable. Yeah, not great. Uh, but I, before we get to that, tell me about what you think happened at the end. Oh, at the end, uh, I feel like Edward James almost uh, w- was there and uh, was like, I could have killed her, but I gave you guys a chance to run away together. And then the, I don't know, the the wonderful double double use of the line. Uh, it's too bad she won't live but then again who does like yeah. hey go live your life buddy go fuck that the, the okay. replicant I have another theory Ooh. so this movie uh, you can look at it in a million different ways and it will be a million different things to you which is part of why it's brilliant I have a very specific interpretation of this movie okay. um, that 
that I think is probably pretty common. It's not, it's like stuff that I've read that I agree with, you know, okay. I'm not making this up like, uh, but, uh, like I prescribe to a certain school of thought about this movie. Okay. That, uh, what the last scene represents when he finds that little, uh, origami unicorn, when Harrison Ford, Rick Deckard, I have to be specific. Right. I forget to be specific sometimes, and I'm just talking in pronouns, and it's hard to understand if you're listening later. Uh, Not so if you know the movie. I guess that's true. You know, and it's like, if you've never seen the movie, why are we your first exposure to yeah, it? Yeah, totally. That's, that's a very good point. Okay, so so Deckard finds the, the origami unicorn. Mm-hmm. Remember in the middle of the movie when he had a dream about a unicorn? Right. I think that is when uh, Edward James Olmos' character is basically saying, you are also a replicant. I think that's what that double line meant. What? Yeah. Shit. So yeah. what I think Blade yeah. Runner is about is a movie about watching uh, a Nexus 6 replicant become self-aware of his own emotions. And I think that in the beginning of the movie, Harrison Ford has no idea that he's a robot and emotional at all. And then throughout the course of the movie, he like he finally has that break at the very end when he kills that uh, the bad guy, well, quote unquote bad guy. But we'll get right. to that in a second. Uh, when he kills that guy at the end he starts to cry and he has this like emotional moment yeah. because this other person saved his life. And it's the first time he shows any emotion in the whole movie. So I think that's his emotional awakening. And the last shot of the movie is him seeing this thing that's from his dreams and know that his dream is a memory that was implanted by someone else. Shake his head. Yes. And then walk off with his girlfriend. That's hot fire. Yeah. That's wonderful. Uh, I'm 100% on board with that theory. I like that very much. And this is something that's been talked about a lot. Like Ridley Scott has been straight up asked and he says like that he won't answer. He won't answer. And apparently he was a bitch to work with on set because he wouldn't answer on set. And Harrison Ford asked him like a thousand times, like, which way do you want me to play this? And apparently he kept saying both. So so my my meta theory about this movie is that it was Ridley Scott's experiment to see if he could tell two narratives at once. And I think he succeeds in that. Yeah, dude, that was that's incredible. Uh, I like that theory so much. Isn't that awesome? That's the fucking juice. So it kind of like helps me accept the rape scene because because he's an android and he's discovering his sexuality for the first time ever and he doesn't know how to express it and he gets like forcefully violent and it's like very upsetting to watch but I think it's a character moment on like, I mean it's obviously a character moment on purpose but I think that's where the filmmakers were coming from is that like maybe here's this android trying to uh, trying to express sexuality for the first time and, and going wrong a little bit. Yeah, perhaps. Still made me <laughs> wicked uncomfortable. It's very uncomfortable. I for stand sure. by wicked uncomfortable. Yeah, I mean, there's been viewings of this movie where I like couldn't get past that, where I was watching yeah. that. But this viewing in particular, this is the first time that I've watched it, forcing myself to think the whole time, okay, he's a replicant, you know? Yeah. He's a replicant who has no emotions in the beginning. Like, I put myself in that mindset as we were watching. Yeah. And then I've never done that before. And watching him kind of unfold emotionally throughout the movie to the point where I think he becomes self-aware at the end was really interesting. Because Mm. because he's, like, a terrible character. So the other theory that I'd read is that uh, Harrison Ford's the bad guy of this movie, that maybe he's a human, but he's just the bad guy. And he's like going around killing all of these robots as they're discovering their own uh, independence. And uh, I think it's his name, Rutger Hauer, I think the actor. I don't know. It's Harrison Ford is the name. So I think all the other uh, robots are basically like teenagers who just discovered their own 
awareness yeah and are acting out like they're wearing weird clothes they're acting very childish so like when Rutger Howard kills his his dad basically he gets this god complex uh which lasts until the end of the movie he like goes through the entire course of human emotion very quickly and he becomes he like you see these vast extremes in his personality and then he starts to shut down at the end and kind of go a little mad i think like he sticks that nail into his hand to wake up his own synapses because he realizes that he's shutting down yeah and he's trying to stay awake long enough to have this last game with this person because he just wants to be alive right like he doesn't i don't think he even wants to kill him he just wants to like play this game and have this this quote unquote human connection with someone at the end as he's dying. Interesting. Because he thinks that he's God now because he's had this godlike experience. And I, I say that in like a positive way. Like he's right. Uh like he's touching something beyond himself at the end and he wants to share it with someone else. Interesting. And like I mean the there's like the brutal murder of his father, which is very upsetting. Oof, hard to watch. Yeah. yeah. The movie more moments that were super hard to watch than I was expecting. Yeah, totally. Uh yeah. Yeah, yeah, not at all campy when it came to being super hard to watch. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's beautiful, too. Yeah. It's fucking oh, gorgeous. Yeah, let's talk just good stuff about the movie first. Yeah, let's do it. Uh, the One of the just the coolest looking movies I've ever seen. Totally. And like, uh, almost to the same degree as like, uh, what I would consider like my gold standard, uh, Mad Max Fury Road, almost to mm. the same uh, level creates a world injects you into the world and you have a full understanding of the world they do such a good job yeah. of just being like here is the landscape and you just are part of it immediately totally uh oh my god it's so good yeah yeah i totally so agree good. there's so many little details it's it's one of the one of if not the most real feeling sci-fi movies yeah. and it's a big part of why i love it so much because i think uh i didn't really pick up on a lot of the uh like the undertones of the examining of human nature that are happening until like the third or fourth viewing so the first three or four times i'm just like this is a fucking beautiful movie yeah uh and i just love it as a sci-fi fan it's like it's like being fucked in the eyes with science fiction (laughs) it's like really wonderful but and then i used to be disappointed because i felt like there wasn't much of a story and now that i have like started to see it from a different perspective. I'm like obsessed with the story and want to watch it over and over to kind of see all these little hidden character moments that are just like, uh, facial expressions, you know? Yeah. I don't know. I felt like first viewing, I felt like there was a a hell of a story there. Oh really? Yeah. I thought it was super interesting. And I think like, uh, I don't know. I thought, uh, it was a really interesting, like good sci-fi is like, uh, analogous to some like, real world problem always totally and like it just did a wonderful job of like uh exploring how human beings treat things that they consider less than human totally um, absolutely like yeah. it did a, a fucking stellar job of it yeah it's really interesting totally man yeah I, I have to like justify to myself the the rapey scene because it's so uncomfortable yeah but i think that that is another thing they were trying to accomplish is say that like he he hunts and kills these things for a living. If he's going to have sex with one, he's not going to, he's not going to treat it like a human. Interesting. Mm. I don't know. I only saw it the once. I don't have all that many, uh, yeah, well, well totally. put together thoughts. I'm like getting yet. all philosophical and you're like, it was pretty. I, I apologize. <laughs> no, I'm like, I want to like talk about like the deep, dark, dirty <laughs> secrets of Blade Runner right I now. I would, I, uh, I would, uh, 
I don't know. I feel like any thought that I have right now on the morality of said film will not be all that well thought out because totally. I just witnessed it the once. I've totally. watched it a couple times and, and I like shouldn't, pick apart the craftsmanship. I, I shouldn't ask you these questions after your first viewing. It is not fair. It is not fair. I apologize. It's fine. Um, no, it's whatever. It's fine. I'm never doing the podcast again. <laughs> so you were taking notes during the movie and I'm yeah. very curious what you wrote down. Um, all right. Well, the first one uh, was just that it does like, like I just said, like a Fury Road level good job of just being like here's a large immersive world you're a part of uh like the fact that every establishing shot starts as wide as possible Mm -hmm. and then gets slowly closer revealing like a new layer of the world uh was wonderful i was like yeah like slow slow pans in so that Mm -hmm. you kind of like you think you're seeing the shot but then by the end of the shot it's basically a different shot you know and you're seeing way deeper into the background and yeah and you like like, buildings way far off in the distance mm -hmm. that are odd shaped that you've never seen anything like before yes Yes, 100%. Yeah. Um, And then, uh, let's see, what else? Uh, Harrison Ford is just, uh, I don't think I ever noticed it till, till like very recently, but he is like the most crotchety person. <laughs> he is like so crotchety. It's insane. All of like, like the thing that makes like a good actor is like, like, uh, uh, I don't know, like what's their what's their attitude while they do everything, and his uh-huh. is exclusively crotchety. He's always <laughs> like really grumpy that he has to do whatever he has to do. <laughs> totally, and it's wonderful. Apparently, he's like that in real life. Oh, I fully believe that. That yeah. makes a lot of sense. Like, like the version of Harrison Ford in Blade Runner might be closer to Harrison Ford in real life than Han Solo per yeah. se, or Indiana Jones. Han Solo's pretty crotchety too. But he's lovably so. Yeah, but pretty crotchety. Indiana yeah. Jones, pretty crotchety. They're all very just true. like... They're, they're like the happy, sad spectrum of crotchety. Uh-huh, yeah. Yeah, yeah they're all just like like a uh, dad who can't find something that he's pretty sure should be somewhere. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, where the fuck is the screwdriver? Totally. Like you put Rick Moranis in that part and have him say the same lines and it would work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. hundred <laughs> percent. Yes. For Can sure. you imagine Rick Moranis as Han Solo or even better as Indiana Jones? Like Rick Moranis with a whip as pretty Indiana good. Jones. That'd be great. <laughs> it would be pretty good. Um, let's Fortune and glory. <laughs> uh, now that we've talked about him being uh, a replicant. Yeah. That changes this. I uh, early on, I was like, "What's likable about specifically Harrison Ford as this character is that he's like his grumpiness in having to empathize with something." I think is like, I don't know, interesting to watch. Yeah, because like, people are, are grumpy when they have to empathize with someone they haven't previously emphasized with. It's like not fun to like confront pain in the world. Yeah, and totally. I like how grumpy he is while he's doing it. But now that the replicant theory is there. Yeah, so the test that he's giving people is an empathy test. Right. So he's trying to test to see if people have empathy, and if they don't, then they're replicants. Right. So yeah, totally. I mean, it's, again, like, both stories are there. Like, he could just be, like, a really non-empathetic person. I mean, the mu- the movie is not explicit one way or the other. Right. But, and but, I like that they ask, people ask him more than once if he's ever taken the test. Like, do Yeah, you ask? totally. And he totally. doesn't answer at all. Totally. Which I thought was interesting, but I didn't think about it till the end. Yeah. So here's the problem. Uh, 
I think one of the reasons the, this movie works so well is because it has two stories inside of it that can be seen in parallel that are both just as valid. I think that's what makes this like such a brilliant movie and one that people just love so much and watch over and over is because like it, there's just so much depth and there's so many layers and you can. This like, is the 2007 version, right? Yeah. So yeah. what's different from the 1982 version? Oh, you know what? I, I did some research and pulled that up, but I, I have to, I'll forget this thought if I don't finish. Cool. It. Sorry. Um, so when the new movie is about to come out, Blade Runner 2049, and it's, probably going to answer the question of whether or not he was a replicant oh interesting so so that's my my fear is that just by making a sequel you might tarnish the 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 intent of the original movie yeah that makes sense yeah but i don't know i mean maybe they won't reveal that but we'll find out when we see it that's my i want them to not reveal that because i love having both you know yeah okay so there are seven uh i'm on a quora.com what okay. is the best version of Blade Runner? Cool. Uh, so, because I looked this up today to make sure I was like, I like to make sure I knew what the one I liked was called because I didn't remember. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, what was the one that was in 2000 whatever? And it was the final cut. Yeah. Because I didn't know if it was the director's cut or the final cut. But okay. But okay. So here's what it says here. There's seven versions that were shown to audience. One is a work print that was shown to test audiences. Uh, no voiceover, no dream sequence, no happy ending with Deckard and Rachel driving away. Uh, which, as we mentioned before, was B-roll from Kubrick's The Shining, which is so funny. So this movie originally ended with them getting in a car and driving away and like a voiceover of living happily ever after, uh, if memory serves correctly, something along those lines. Uh, Number two is a sneak preview in San Diego shown to a test audience before the U.S. release. Three scenes were cut as a result of this showing, so it must not have gone super well. Okay. Um, The U.S. theatrical version released in 1982. This is the version most people grew up with. Narration was added and a happy ending tacked on by the film's backers who were worried the work print was much too dark and confusing. Ridley Scott, now working on Thelma and Louise, was essentially locked out of the editing room. So the first movie that he made was more like what we just watched uh, than what was originally shown in theaters. So what we just watched is what Ridley Scott wanted it to be, basically. But that's not like what people know. Well, that this has become the definitive version. I mean, as far as I'm concerned, as far as like sci-fi circles are concerned of things that I read online and people that I know who are in the sci-fi circle, like this is the version, you know, Interesting. Uh, people love the original for nostalgia reasons. And a lot of people actually love it because of the narration. Like they think that the narration adds a lot to the movie. Uh, Harrison Ford despised the narration and he delivered it poorly on purpose because he thought it was ruining the movie. <laughs> so, uh, I, I have not watched that version since I was a kid, okay. but that's the version I saw first. And it didn't like, like this was not one of my favorite movies as a kid. It wasn't until I saw it as an adult and I saw this version that it became one of my favorite movies ever. Yeah. I mean, it's, this is really, really high up there for me yeah. as far as like favorite movies ever are concerned, yeah. uh, which is why I'm so uncomfortable and feel defendy about that rape sequence. Yeah. But okay. So the, the fourth version was the international cut, which was more violent. Uh, all that violence or most of that violence was cut back into what we just saw, uh, okay. I believe. Yeah, if it, that was pretty, it's pretty violent. Pretty violent. Yeah. Uh, broadcast version in 1986 edited for TV. Director's cut in 1992, uh, which was not overseen by Ridley Scott, which is weird because it's called the director's cut. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, he was... Uh, this was... The, the impetus... Director's cut. <laughs> yeah. Fucking zing. <laughs> 
<laughs> the impetus behind this was actually a screening of the original work print that went over very well with the audience. The studio realized there was demand for a cut that hewed closer to Scott's original version. And then the last version is the final cut, which we just watched. Which Ridley uh, Scott was allowed to cut together. Yes. It's the only one that Ridley Scott had complete creative control over. Uh, it's similar to the director's cut because there's no voiceover and no happy ending. It has many differences and does restore the complete dream sequence with the unicorn. So the the final the final cut is the one that makes it more explicitly clear uh, that he's, that he's a, replicant. a replicant. Yeah, gotcha. Or or at least like more explicitly suggestive. Right. I think I think clear, but a lot of people disagree with me. Yeah. But, you know, I, I feel like I feel like the fact that he had to put it back in to me feels like he's like trying to that he's indicating something. You know, what I, I mean? agree. Yeah. That's also why I'm afraid that he's going to spill the beans in the sequel. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, he got spilled them beans. Them you beans so? getting spilled. Yeah, for sure. Ryan Gosling's going to say right off the bat, you're a dang replicant. Aren't you? <laughs> My theory is that that they built. Deckard with without that fail safe to die in four years because maybe he's like a government model or something because he works in law enforcement. Yeah, Uh, because there's got to be like a government contract. Right. Right. Uh, So maybe and like we have no idea at this point why Harrison Ford is still alive if he's a replicant because this like is seemingly proof that he's not a replicant because he's still alive. Right. But then my my theory is that he was like a a, a military model who doesn't have an expiration date because they built in an expiration date. He might just age as a robot. I mean, if he's made of synthetic shit, it might just age and then yeah. he look like an aging human later. Yeah, that, that's what they did in, you know, to bring. Arnold Schwarzenegger back to the Terminator franchise. Is that true? Yeah. I don't remember that. I remember watching that. I don't remember if it was any good. Terminator Genesis? Oh, I just was talking Terminator 3. Oh. Uh, yeah, he in Terminator 3, he played like a scientist version of himself who built the robot. But he also no. played the robot. Is that true? Uh, just as like a cameo. But he also played the robot itself as the robot. Incredible. In the third one, he's still supposed to be the original robot. Right. Okay. Yeah. And in the fourth one, they did CG to make him look like he was there, but they made him look like he was from the original movie instead of the version from like the second and third movies. It's all very confusing. Yeah, there's a lot happening. Yeah. Dude, fandom is hard. It's fun, though. It takes dedication. It takes like a a very high level of anal retention. (laughs) Yeah. 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 Um, Yeah. I'm I'm still excited to see this movie. I don't know. I feel all right about it. Yeah, I mean, I'm I am reserving judgment. Like, if uh, if it if it like makes the first one worse, I'll be very sad. That's like the only thing that I would be worried about. Yeah, I don't have too much trouble separating stuff like that. Yeah, that's yeah. good though. I think that's healthy. Yeah, well, it's just like it's a whole new thing. If yeah. it if it improves, it wonderful. Now those things get lumped together. But if it doesn't, then you don't have to lump them together. You can just yeah. classify them as different things in your head. That's totally like the right call also, you know, yeah, like crazy wise. Yeah. Like why? Like it shouldn't ruin the original Star Wars that the new Star Wars suck, Mm-mm. you know, or like the, the prequels suck. I got to no, 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 I got to stop saying that the new Star Wars suck because that's not true anymore. That's that's yeah, a nice feeling. That one hasn't been true since like episode six. Uh, Well, yeah. fucking zing. <laughs> <laughs> fucking nailed it with that one <laughs> yeah i uh thought, i thought you were i thought you were serious no well i mean i do enjoy the prequels just yeah. fine but uh so check out sci-fi on trial phantom menace <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, the time we talked for four hours mm-hmm. about this. So we yeah. don't need to talk about this, this more. You're not wrong. Yeah. What other notes did you take? Um, I think that's it. Yeah. I just wrote rapey because it was rapey. Rapey. <laughs> yeah. How did you feel about that? Uh, I didn't like watching it. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Again, I would like to stress that I would have to watch it again and give more thought to it. Yeah. Uh, in order to feel okay about my opinions. But on a gut level, it made me go, no. Like, yeah. Yeah, I, I agree. And I felt I feel about Blade Runner the same way I felt about Passengers recently and that like putting a character like Chris Pratt or Harrison Ford in the position of being your star and then having them be kind of shitty people in the movie and do shitty things. Yeah, I think is really interesting uh, because this this movie in particular makes you question who the good guy is. I mean, the yeah. the replicants might be the good guys in this movie. Like yeah. they were slaves on a penal colony that they had to break out of. Yeah, it's, I felt like there's a good argument for them being good guys yeah i mean they really go out of their way to make it not seem that way but every time i watch the movie i'm more sympathetic to to roy batty who is uh rucker howard's character and less sympathetic sympathetic towards harrison ford so that awkward rapey sex scene came up a lot in this conversation and i uh it got stuck in my head after that i wanted more insight on this. So I called our international correspondent, Laura B, and asked her how she felt about the sex scene in Blade Runner, and here's what she had to say. Really fucking uncomfortable. Really, really uncomfortable. And, like, uh, everything right up until then is so good that it's that much more disappointing to be like, oh, okay, suddenly this film doesn't want me to feel safe. Um, and I get... Having just rewatched it, like, literally seconds ago, I can see from a filmmaker's point of view how you'd be setting it up with her playing the piano immediately beforehand and kind of trying to work out what's her experiences and what are false memories, like how she can't trust herself and how she can't figure out what it is that she wants and feels. So for him to come out and say, like, no, but you really want me. And to make her say that, like, I can see how from a filmmaker's point of view, you could get lost in that as your vision and completely miss the part where you've got a crying woman being told, now you have to fuck me. Let's go. And it's so uncomfortable. And I remember like the last time I watched Blade Runner before this, I was in the Prince Charles Cinema in London, which is a great cinema that really just does like random old films and interesting like all-nighters they do all sorts of cult classic cinema that's the reason they're the reason that i've seen um oh my god buckaroo bonsai such a good film but they they're the people who show that stuff in london they're the place you go for that um and i went there for a blade runner like night and was just like accosted by that scene because I had completely overwritten that in my memory somehow from the last time I'd seen it before that. Came out going, Jesus, that was, I feel more violated than I expected to coming out of that movie because it's, it, she's really, really just crying and uncomfortable and she's really being shoved around by a guy in a moment of vulnerability um, who is basically her protector at this point. Um, and he's taking advantage of her. I think it's the, the, the argument that I've seen online is that because she's a replicant, she's, it, it's not rape. 
because that's okay because she's not a person. But like the whole point of the film is that replicants are people and have emotions just like people do and have a different lifespan and they're a different life form. But they're they're as capable of emotion as humans. And so to completely then be like, no, but it's fine. She's she she doesn't have any feelings about this. It's like it makes me really really um aggravated that um I mean like a lot of films I guess when you go back and watch them and think actually no that was the gender politics were awful like oh nope that scene really sucks like okay that racism isn't fun that scene in that film in particular has not aged well at all for me I don't know there's there is making yourself feel better by explaining away something in a film that you're that you don't like and and I do that all the time with shit that I really don't like about plots. I'm like, "Oh, it's okay. Like the the internet will provide me with fan fiction versions of this that don't suck. Um it'll be fine or I'll write the fan fiction version that doesn't that doesn't in, in, account for this thing that I don't like." We do have to hold things that we love accountable even when it hurts us to do so sometimes. Um, and I, I, that's part of the problem of being, you know, everything is problematic. I'm problematic. Everyone is, uh, we all have moments and it's, it's impossible to find something that is purely like non-problematic in the world, but being able to acknowledge things that are problems and discuss them means that we can still go about loving things that are problematic and doing so in a way that is critical and that is, uh, takes into account their flaws. And maybe, as you say, maybe we are meant to feel... Un I, I hope for everyone's sake that we are meant to feel uncomfortable in that moment. Um, I hope that it is, like... It's the sax solo in the background that really makes me think that that's a tough sound. <laughs> it's like, no, this is sexy. No, this is... No, really. Like, the soundtrack is sitting there going, this is sexy, everybody. Um, when the rest of us are going, cringe, 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 wait, hang on. No, no, but no means no. So, yeah, I don't know. It's difficult to come to a conclusion about other than it's it doesn't break the film for me, but I feel like it really, really is uh, non-consensual. Yeah, they do a good job of, like, even pretty early on when the guy's explaining to Harrison Ford the deal with the bad guys. Essentially, he's like, yeah, and if we let them live too long, they're going to start having memories and personalities and shit. Yeah. Like, it's it's like a weird... Uh, yeah, and when he says it, you're like, oh, no, that can't happen. But then if you give that any thought, it's like, well, I don't know, this seems all right. It feels yeah. like, why are we killing these people? Totally. It feels like we made be made people and now we're murdering people. Totally. Yeah, that's the big question. Like, are are they people? If they're self-aware and they have emotions yeah. and they look like people. I would argue, yes, I've been pro-robot uh, yeah. for a long time. It's like the only philosophical stance of mine that I had when I was 16 that I still stand by. <laughs> yeah, I I would argue, yes, also that they are people. So then or the question like, becomes, like, should we build something like that? Yeah, I think no, man. Just yeah. first we got to make everything that we currently have smarter. So I'm talking intelligent goats. I'm talking intelligent <laughs> frogs, intelligent rabbits. We're going to star fox it up, and then we'll do AI. But right now I want smarter, smarter furry creatures. Just to practice? 
Yeah, just it's, to learn how to deal with other sentient things. The, one of my favorite books does that. It. It's called Gun with Occasional Music. I talked about this with uh, Doug recently. Uh, aliens are like sentient, aware creatures that talk to you. And this guy's like partner. He's like a cop. is a kangaroo. Nice. <laughs> it's awesome. Yeah, that's delightful. Yeah. But you do you think we should like build artificial oh, I don't people? know, man. Uh I would say it freaks me. AI freaks me out uh, yeah. in like a lizard brain kind of way, but I don't yeah. know that that's reasonable. Yeah, I question that too. And this this movie <laughs> takes advantage of that because it expects you to react that way when he says that they are gaining memories. Like yeah. my reaction's fear. And like, why right. is that? You know, right? If they are becoming like self aware people, I'm not afraid of. I am afraid of people. I guess maybe that's the thing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I don't know. It. Uh... Yeah, I don't know. Even like, oh no, has it uh, been? Yeah, it we're been gonna give it two more minutes. Okay. Um, I don't know. Even like when you read like like Elon Musk and like Bill Gates and like there's these people who are like kind of terrified of AI and like what it what like what the creation of it will mean. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. There's like a, I uh. It feels like they're the people who should know best, and even they are kind of like, ah, oh, I don't know. It seems scary, but I don't. I don't really know. I don't know. It's, yeah. It's a, a hard problem, uh, a very hard philosophical problem to fucks with. Yeah. I don't know either. It's not, no this idea. is again, it's not fair for me to ask you these questions. I don't know if it's moral for us to create intelligence. Uh, is it immoral for us to do it or is it amoral? Is it just totally without moral judgment? Hmm. But I mean, what is having children if not creating intelligence? Do you think maybe you could raise artificial intelligence the way you would raise a child to be a productive member of society? Maybe, but then you wouldn't require the intelligence to grow like how a baby grows. Like you'd have to put that intelligence into a small body that slowly gets bigger and you can like constrain it as it gets more intelligent. Yeah, uh, that's a great idea. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I don't know if the act, uh, I bet the act, uh, I would say, if I were to think about this for a long time, I bet that my opinion would be something along the lines of the act of creating intelligence is without moral judgment. It's how you create the thing that you make. Fuck yeah. You know? That's fantastic. Cool. See, that's cool. that's exactly why I was particularly interested in, in your take on this movie. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Totally. I'll take it. That was great. So uh, if you're out there and you want me on your science fiction philosophy podcast, hit me <laughs> up on Facebook. <laughs> when I get stoned, I can't help but ask philosophy questions. Oh, same. It's like all I want to talk about. It's all I want to talk about most of the time anyway. Yeah, totally. Yeah. I, oh, man, we should we should have like a, if you ever want to come back on the show, pick like cool. something that you want to have a philosophy discussion about. Cool. And then make me watch It'll, it. But we need to call it like philosophy for dummies because that's okay. what I like about doing it is I, I understand that I am at best like muddying the waters of a discussion because I don't think my my thoughts I'm like a real pseudo intellectual I have these like big thoughts that I'm like ah, I don't have any logical basis for all these it's just how I feel in my gut and I put it into words <laughs> yeah totally totally I like that though yeah. I think, that's, I oh, think that's like something people don't don't do enough you know yeah I think it's all most people do and I think it's very fun but I think we should be cognizant of how much it's just feelings in our gut that we're putting words to rather than the other way around I think we let a lot of it be like defining of, of our behavioral philosophy. And I don't think that's necessarily healthy. Interesting. I just think so many people are completely disconnected from what they're thinking and feeling at all times that they never say any of it. So like trying to say it can be a, like a, a beneficial way to get in touch with your own opinions. 
that makes sense all right yeah. i uh yeah i would defend it as well i don't think it's intrinsically bad i think yeah it's uh good for you as well i'm trying yeah. to order an uber and seeing how far away it is so how long we can talk <laughs> we definitely have to do this again i i well i love having you on sci-fi on trial but we've never had you on this show before yeah be this is awesome. very very fun yeah cool yeah. then let's wrap it up and yeah. i'm gonna get an uber cool bye y'all hearts many hearts like that <laughs> perfect <laughs> cool and that's going to wrap it up for another edition of Sci-Fi with Jesse Mercury. Special thanks to all my guests who made this a very special episode. And extra special thanks to you, the listener. I love you. Thank you for listening. A couple days ago, I podcasted live for the very first time on Facebook with my good friend Jefferson Salamander. We talked about Star Trek Next Generation Season 5. It went super well. We had really great engagement from, uh, from people chatting with us online while we were talking. And I had so much fun. We're definitely going to do that again. That episode's coming up within the next couple weeks on this show, so you'll get to hear everything that happened. I've also got great episodes about Pitch Black and Metropolis coming up. So make sure you're subscribed so you don't miss any of the awesome shit. If you enjoyed the show, do me a solid and leave us a positive rating review on iTunes. It makes me happy. That's why. All right. I hope you enjoyed the show. I'll see you very soon. Stay nerdy out there.